Hey everybody, welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Mark Gagne, I'm here with Trevor Clifford. How are you feeling today, Mr. Clifford? Uh, I feel alright, I feel like Terry Crews driving a Mini Cooper. <laughs> he would fit, they, they, I think the seat goes pretty far back. You think he would uh, fit? It would still look funny. Yeah. <laughs> it would. Uh, I'm feeling like R-rated Richard Scarry today. Like busy town. Busy town on HBO. <laughs> what would that look like? What would that be like? <laughs> like a gritty kind of uh, reboot. It's the wire. He's like doing cocaine. Yeah, the like the the earthworm with like the helicopter, <laughs> the Apple helicopter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All you need is that HBO logo to start it up. Yeah. Aww. <laughs> Uh, me and Mark each have a book, and uh, I don't know what book he's going to do. He doesn't know what book I'm going to do. But we kind of do a little shitty book report about it, uh, talk about it, uh, read about it, see what's out there about the author or the book itself, and uh, you guys decide if it's interesting or not. <laughs> yeah. Um, we've played a few games on here before. Um, Mark invented the game Plot or Not. Uh, so we planned on doing that today, right, Mark? Yeah, let's do another round. So okay. last time, I asked, I presented the plots, and you you went six and one, so I didn't do a good enough job. I got right. Uh, so explain the uh, rules of the game. All right. Well, basically, um, Trevor's gonna throw some uh, synopsis, some plots of books at me, and some of them are real, some are fake, and it's up to me to decide. Right. And the first time that you did it, you did self-published Amazon erotica, did you not? Yeah, yeah, some romance <laughs> novels. <laughs> some and uh, romance I didn't novels. do a good enough job at tricking Trevor. <laughs> I, I made up a few of my own. One of them was Gender Swapped, uh, Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> One of them was uh, the, the uh, pilot to Friends. Yeah. So, didn't disguise um, it well enough. So I have for you, are you ready for it? Okay, so I chose the genre. Okay, and what do you got? the plot or not genre is classic noir fiction. <laughs> All right. So some of these are classic noir novel summaries that are like the professional summaries that are inside the book jacket and also online. And some of these are written by me. And I'm just going to mix it up completely, okay? Okay. So without knowing the title oh and also in some of the descriptions like even the book jacket it said a main character's name. I took that out. Okay. So if it said, you know, whatever, yeah, you know, the name, then I took that out. So it's all generic. So here we go. Um, okay, the first plot is a horrific mass murder invades the lives of victims and victimizers on both sides of the law. Three, three cops treading quicksand in the middle. Uh... Is that, no, that real? That sounds real. That's that real. real I'll thing? say real. Okay, that's real. That yeah. is real, and that is the plot for the Dust Jacket to L.A. Confidential. Oh, really? Okay. L.A. Confidential, yeah. I have never read the book, but and I've never seen the movie. I'm completely devoid of L.A. Confidential. <laughs> uh, There's not real quicksand in it, though, I bet. Yeah, no quicksand. And that's a weird. that's also like a weird way to end a, a thing. Three cops treading quicksand in the middle. Uh, yeah. Sounds like a it sounds like a clue to um, uh, Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, 
Mark is one for one. So next up is a kidnapped diamond heiress and an amateur private eye get more than they bargain for. The dirty streets of Pompeii were the perfect place to hide before a looming natural disaster threatens to expose the seedy underworld of guns, drugs, and murder. That that better be fake. (laughs) (laughs) That's fake. (laughs) Okay, nice. (laughs) That's fake. Fine. I tr- I tricked another friend with, with these way more effectively. So you're being That's uh, Joe versus the volcano. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Kidnapped diamond heiress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was made by me, and I want to read that. You know, I want to see that. Yeah, yeah. Try it out. Okay. Make uh, the movie. Next one up. A treasure worth killing for. A slightly shopworn private eye with his own solitary code of ethics. A perfumed grafter. A fat man. And a beautiful and treacherous woman whose loyalties shift at the drop of a dime. Ah, uh, that's that sounds so fake. It's got to be real. <laughs> You're exactly right. That's the Maltese Falcon. Fat man. The Maltese Falcon. <laughs> really? Yeah, a fat man. That's the one where I took all the names out because it says like a fat man named <laughs> Gourmand. Um. All right, ready? All right, three and zero. Oh. All right. A dying millionaire hires a private eye to handle the blackmailer of one of his two troublesome daughters, and the detective finds himself involved with more than extortion. Kidnapping, pornography, seduction, and murder are just a few of the complications he gets caught up in. Mm-hmm. Sounds real. God damn, real. it's the big sleep. You're right. <laughs> oh, yeah, I've read that. Okay. Yeah, the big sleep. Yeah, I've read it, too. I can um, see that. And... Let's go for this one. A car mechanic reveals he's more than he seems when a young woman's body is found behind his garage. National newspapers swoop in from every state to grab the scoop, but a local reporter has all the resources she needs to swing the narrative her way. Hmm. Ah, uh, real again. I'll go with real. Fake. Oh. Yes, I nice. am the winner. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to read that? National newspapers swoop in from everywhere, but the local reporter is is the only one who knows the true story? Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I definitely want to read that. Okay, so that's it. That's everything. You came out out on top, but I fooled you once. All right, nice. I fooled you once. Since this is episode seven, I think I'm going first this week, right? Yeah, we just determined that you are on odds because you went first Not for the first numbers. time. So you're the, yeah, you're an odd one. Nice. So all um, right, take it away. I mean, it's 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 your turn. So Mark is gonna tell us about what you've been reading, man. All right, yeah. Here's my shitty book report. Uh so let me start off. So if if you were fortunate enough to have been a, a real dipshit around 2007, 2008, like I was. Uh, you might be familiar. <laughs> you might be familiar with a certain uh, toilet bowl cleaner called The Works. You remember the that work. stuff, Trevor? The Works. Anything I don't remember. I remember. Like, there's probably some inside joke from our high school days that had to do with this, but uh, I don't remember. <laughs> Why is it, is it so great for vandalism? No. Well, The Works plus aluminum foil was like it's like the original Diet Coke and Mentos. You know, oh, you throw, okay, it foams up. That was okay. the one, yeah, yeah, you throw them both in like a Gatorade bottle or something, and in a couple minutes you got an explosion. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> well, anyways, I want to read a quick segment from the book I brought today uh, and give you a chance to guess who it's by. Okay. Play another little mini game. All right. 
chapter 54, Bernard Mickey Wrangle's favorite homemade bomb recipes. Number one, the hearts and diamonds bomb. Take a deck of ordinary playing cards, the old fashioned paper kind, cut out the red spots and soak them overnight like beans. Alcohol is the best soaking solution, but tap water will suffice. Plug one end of a short length of pipe. Pack the soggy hearts and diamonds into the pipe. On pre-plastic pre playing cards, the red spots were printed with a diazo dye, a chemical that has an unstable high-energy bond with nitrogen. So you've got some nitro of sorts. Now you'll be needing glycerin. Hand lotion will work nicely. Glug a little lotion into the pipe. To activate the quasi-nitroglycerin, you'll require potassium permanganate. That you can find in the snake bite section of any good first aid chest. Add a dash of the potassium permanganate and plug the other end of the pipe. Heat the pipe. A direct flame is best, but simply laying the pipe atop a hot radiator will turn the trick. Take cover. The woodpecker <laughs> used a hearts and diamonds bomb to release himself from McNeil Island the first time that he was confined there. The Drano uh... number... <laughs> okay. Keep going. All right. Uh, I'm going to jump to number three. Uh, or no, number four. The Fruit Loops and Batshit Bomb. A woodpecker original. Sugar is an unstable chemical that loves to oxidize as passionately as sulfur does, and in much the same way. In preparing this dish, think of sugar as sulfur. The components of gunpowder are sulfur, carbon, and saltpeter. Fruit Loops, or any similar breakfast cereal, contains a good deal of sugar and carbon. As for saltpeter, batshit is a perfect source. If batshit is unavailable, bird dew will do. The older the guano, the better. Aesthetic as well as pragmatic considerations make the fresh, wet splat inadvisable. Grind up the Fruit Loops, mix in the batshit thoroughly. When mixing Fruit Loops and batshit, don't be surprised if you find the color attractive. In fact, you may end up with a clear understanding of art and its origins. For that reason, this is the bomb recommended to reviewers and critics. Okay, I interrupted you before because <laughs> I thought it might be One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? No. Oh, okay. Um, this is actually... The book I want to talk about today is the 1980 novel Still Life with Woodpecker by Tom Robbins. Ah, uh, yes, Tom Robbins, the, one of the masters. Yeah, um, well, in short, um, I mean, it's a... This book, it's a weird-ass love story where a princess falls in love with an outlaw. But because it's Tom Robbins and he's insane, it's not really that simple. Um, mm -hmm. The princess, she's an environmentalist who idolizes Ralph Nader, and she's part of a royal family that has, for whatever reason, been exiled to Seattle. What's its year of publication? And the outlaw, 1980. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. So the outlaw is an anarchy-loving terrorist known as the woodpecker who can and will make a bomb out of pretty much anything. Hence the like section I started reading. Um, uh, so beside uh, being somewhat opposites, they fall in love, of course. But you know, being an outlaw, the woodpecker finds a way to land himself back in prison. Uh, but out of solidarity, the princess locks herself in a room and swears not to leave until he's released. Mm -hmm. So this kind of sets up Robbins to explore and experiment with uh, what are the like three main themes of this book, uh, which I'd say are making love stay or last. Mm -hmm. um, our relationship with the objects around us, and also living life as an individual. So they're both so, locked. They're both locked away. Yeah, and that kind of sets up the whole mm -hmm. rest of the story. But it's hard to kind 
kind of describe because I'm going to get into a little further like about the background of Tom Robbins and maybe some people might not know that much about him. Uh, but I want to say ultimately like this book is kind of about choice and how, you know, it's the main thing that really defines us. Uh, cool. So I know that you've read a few books by him and yeah, I've but I was read, pretty um, sure you hadn't gotten to this one. I've read Skinny Legs and All. I have read um, the one, the perfume one. What's that one? Yeah, Jitterbug Perfume. Jitterbug Perfume. And I've read about one page of his autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, I mean, I only, I actually just, I know about him because you recommended Skinny Legs and All to me like years ago. So mm-hmm. thanks. <laughs> You're responsible. Yeah, well, he, I, like when you were just, um, saying all those plot points i was thinking back to what i was talking about last week with that critic james wood where it's like he has such a problem with a hyper real sort of you know authors that make the characters whatever they want them to be kind of thing yeah yeah what was the Um, term for that shit it was called like um hyper like uh hyper emotional or something like that Um, yeah yeah uh, i can look it up in my notes i would throw yeah, I would throw Tom Robbins into that. Uh, yeah, so... But anyways, some background on him. Uh, he's an American author. Uh, lives in Seattle. I mean, he he writes his own particular style of, like, comedy and drama. Uh, he was actually born in 1932, so he's he's old as hell. But, you <laughs> know, every nice. picture... Every he's picture I've seen of him... No, every, scene or, every picture I've seen of him makes him look, like, roughly 50. Right, like it's very I, strange. He's, yeah. he's a, have you seen his picture or pictures of him? He's yeah, got, I have. He's seen always him, got yeah. dark sunglasses on, yeah. and he's like he obviously kind of. I'm, I don't know. I'm certain he dyes his hair like every week or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's kind of a mysterious guy, though. You know, he's been linked to like Terrence McKenna and Timothy Leary in that scene, like among among others. But I don't really trust most of the stuff I've read about him online. Like, there's you can see like there's stories of like when Elvis was found dead, he had like Robbins is like debut novel by his side. But I think that's been <laughs> debunked. <laughs> yeah, there is. He does have like a kind of air of mystery around because his autobiographical yeah. work is also semi-fictional, but he's like, trust me, it's, it's mostly true, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. So he's definitely one of those quirky quirky uh, yeah i'm gonna get into that so yeah there's a lot of contradictions when it comes to like even just the basic facts of his life like his age and who he's married to and whatever but you know he openly admits that and he like kind of prefers it that way um so really the only stuff i trust is you know from him or from you know direct interviews that he's done uh and so there's one here from like jan it's january magazine circa like the year 2000 that's really good uh i just want to read a bit from like get some insight into who he is. Okay. So this is the, this is the introduction to the interview. Okay. Though he writes as eloquently on the topic of paradox as he does everything else he's tackled, Tom Robbins is himself a study in contradictions, perhaps even a studied study. A notoriously private man who guards his personal life jealously, he nonetheless accepts book tours and grants interviews at a place in his career when, let's face it, he really doesn't have to. And though he claims to love the coldish, wettish, clamishness of the Pacific Northwestern United States where he and his wife Alexa make their home. Throughout our interview in a dimly lit inside space, 
with a clam aspic type day happening outside, he never removed his sunglasses, declining even when requested to do so for photos. Though, in truth, this whole sunglass episode might have less to do with sun and more to do with other considerations. And while I can report that, with sunglasses in place, he evidences a youthful and healthy glow, I have no idea what, his, what story his eyes might tell. So, uh, so that interview, like this interview is all about the release of his book, what do you Fierce think Invalid's the gla- Home What do you think the glasses Hunters. are about? Like, what do you think that that's about? Are you going to get into that? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. But, I mean, do he does think, talk about his public persona a little do bit. Do you think he has, like, sensitive eyes, or is he, like, really doing it so that, like, no one can... <laughs> I don't know. It might hide his, like, identity a little bit, but uh, there's pictures <laughs> of him without it, too. But... Yeah, that's true. Um, All right. Yeah, so here's here's one of like the responses in the interview. So like the the interview is about that book release, but some a lot of it's about himself. Uh, so in response to like a question about his public persona, he said, um, "I think too much is known about me already. I think biographical information can get in the way of the reading experience, the interchange between the reader and the work. For example, I know far too much about Norman Mailer and Kurt Vonnegut." Because I know as much as I do about their personal lives, I can't read their work without this interjecting itself. So if I had to do it over, I'd probably go the way of J.D. Salinger or Thomas Pynchon and just stay out of it altogether and let all the focus be on the work itself and not on me. So Trevor, what do you think about that? Can you separate the art from the artist when you're reading? I can empathize with his desire to do that because I will admit one time when I read the, bio- when I read the biography of... Um... David Foster Wallace, there's like a guy who like ghost wrote a, an autobiography with him or something like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. He seemed like kind of weird, like, like from then on. And that's obviously a huge thing in the media landscape right now with like in the, especially in the film industry, but everywhere really people are kind of, it's definitely a thing that's in the news right now, like affronting if you can yeah. separate the artist from the art from the artist. So I think I understand when people are super secretive about their lives, but I wonder if it like limits them in certain ways. But um, yeah, yeah. I mean, going back to the first episode, like uh, you're talking about Mishima and like how you weren't a hundred percent about how he was perceived, you know? Yeah, for sure. Like one of like one of my advantages of having read him early on is because I didn't come to him with the idea that. Oh, this is like some conservative like nut job who, who yeah, <laughs> like tried to overthrow the government and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, there's definitely a certain clarity that he's gaining by doing that. Um, but also that like the flip side though too is sort of like there's just a different path to go down. Like someone like who I was talking about last week was Zadie Smith, and you know she's she's kind of. Uh, very not like she's like a celebrity you know she's very acknowledging yeah. of like google and like uh and things like that so uh i guess you can take it either way yeah i mean i was gonna say i'd argue that like because he, he mentioned like pension i said i'd argue that like the lack of information about pension almost like has the same effect where it like affects the work where you're like you know this guy's clearly a genius because of how he acts like the fact he's been able to maintain this gives him like an aura yeah, for sure. And also the <laughs> thing know. the thing that brings an extra element of that to me and Robbins does it, but um Pynchon does it as well is sort of like when you read about a subject that you know about, he seems to be at least relatively knowledgeable about it. So yeah, yeah. also like um 
you know, Pynchon has lived in a lot of areas that he really understands, or he's visit visited a lot of areas that he really understands, like Los Angeles and, you know, or New York or Long Island. And when he gives authentic descriptions of places that I've been, it makes me feel like he's giving authentic descriptions of, you know, like South America and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, you trust. Um, There's some right. trust there. Yeah. Well, anyways, uh, yeah, back to the interview. Here's his response to a question about what his aim is as a writer. Cool. So it kind of gets into that. What I try to do, among other things, is to mix fantasy and spirituality, sexuality, humor, and poetry in combinations that have never quite been seen before in literature. And I guess when a reader finishes one of my books, provided the reader does finish the book, I would like for him or her to be in the state that they would be in after a Fellini film or a Grateful Dead concert, which is to say that they've encountered the life force in a large, irrepressible, and unpredictable way. And as a result, their sense of wonder has been awakened, and all of their possibilities have been expanded. At the same time, I don't think that a novel is supposed to be a guidebook to happiness any more than it's supposed to be a journal of one's personal pain and frustration, which most novels are today, unfortunately. I think the novels that are most important are those that are more on the order of those coyotes that howl on the hills outside of town, something mysterious and wild and hypnotic. Nice. So I kind of like that quote from him. I mean, when I think of Tom Robbins, like, it's... uh, like his work kind of just feels like it's a product of searching forever for like the perfect word or turn of phrase. And, and mm-hmm. that's like actually how he writes, you know, he doesn't like he's, he spends, a, he'll do like a couple sentences a day or something. He's just like very consistent. Well, also like if you, if you're taking a look at Jitterbug Perfume, a lot of that, a lot of that book is about searching forever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, literally, <laughs> literally a character that lives through uh, all of human civilization. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's also really great at putting a ton of like weird imagery in your head through, you know, turns of phrase or Right. Really and it, it, awesome skinny skinny metaphor. legs and all, one of the main characters is like a spoon, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that shit rocked. Uh but but yeah. Back so so by far the the most interesting part of this of this interview was the very end. And I'm I'm certain I've mentioned this to you before. Uh, but Robbins talks about how he keeps a copy of Finnegan's Wake uh, at, by James Joyce at his bedside, and he reads it like a little bit at a time before he goes to sleep. Mm-hmm. I think I told you about that. Yeah. So at the time of the interview, uh, which was June of 2000, he claimed he'd been reading it for 15 years, <laughs> and he was on page 39. <laughs> awesome. He's a yeah. slow reader. So, yeah. So he says about that book, he says, it inspires one's dreams. It colors one's dreams very nicely. If one dreams with a certain amount of language in your dreams, as I often do, because the language in it is incredible. There's so many layers of puns and references to mythology and history. But it's the most realistic novel ever written, which is exactly why it's so unreadable. He wrote that book the way the human mind works, an intelligent, inquiring mind. And that's just the way that consciousness is. It's not linear. It's just one thing piled on another. And all kinds of cross-references. And he just takes that to an extreme. There's never been a book like it, and I don't think there ever will be another book like it. And it's absolutely a monumental human achievement, but it's very hard to read. <laughs> so I I uh, did a little math on this, and 39 pages over 15 years, is yep. that's two, 2.6 pages per year. Correct. So at like an average number of words and standard hardcover is like, let's say 300. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, two point six pages per year. Is Finnegan's Wake really only three hundred pages and like a no, no, binding? no. I'm saying uh, three hundred words per page is like just that average number oh, right. of words yep, per yep. page. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So at two point six pages per year, three hundred words per page. That's seven hundred and eighty words per year. Let's say if he's doing that every day, divide by three sixty five. Dude's reading two words a night, then passing out. <laughs> 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 all so right he, so he the, might be backtracking a lot yeah, the math is not adding up mr robbins this is some yeah yeah so i don't have finnegan's wake but i got a copy of ulysses right here i'm gonna open to a random page and read two read, words yeah read two goes. words yeah read two year words of joyce and see how, how good it is <laughs> see how much it inspires thigh, your dreams thigh smack oh thigh smack yeah huh? thigh smack that can inform I'm some also... dreams if my if my if my finger was uh, two millimeters lower, I would have been jingle blue. <laughs> Ooh, jingle blue. Uh, so hey, that, maybe he's right. Yeah. Maybe maybe those two word combos are what can can inspire uh, many a dream. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> so so that was so that this interview was eighteen years ago too. Uh-huh. So at his current pace, he should be on roughly page eighty five. Right. Which oh is, yeah. It's a six hundred. <laughs> it's yeah. a six hundred twenty eight. So if you ever the book's meet six hundred, yeah, if I you ever, ask him, if you ever meet him, you should ask him if your calculations are accurate. Yeah, <laughs> so he's he's getting there. Uh, he's also eighty six right now, so I'm, I don't think he's ever gonna finish it. He's at a um, he's at a two hundred and forty one and a half year pace to finish the whole book. Two hundred forty. Nice. Okay, uh, so that was my little bullshit. Uh, back to the. <laughs> The, the actual book now. This book, So Still yeah, Life with Woodpecker, book, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I don't want to talk too much about the plot. It, it's a love story. It's strange. It's got, you know, all the mysteries of the world unfolding and inanimate objects and, and just... It's very random, but, you know, it's everything I, I expect out of a Tom Robbins novel. You know, there's, like, clever one-liners, like, insane similes and metaphors you got strange factoids in there wacky characters and uh hey like a confusing but happy ending yeah um, yeah definitely... that's pretty that's pretty universal throughout him too it's just sort of like well i don't yeah. know where i am but i feel good <laughs> it's i would say it's definitely not my favorite of his like i i pref- i would say jitterbug perfume is that by like a mile but you know it there's has a, a lot little of bit moments. in my opinion there's a little bit of some of like unevenness there i think that jitterbug perfume is like like far and ahead like better than almost yeah all, like all the others uh especially as like a like like a cohesive thing yeah um, well his debut is awesome you should read that which uh, one's that another, it's called another roadside attraction another roadside. well you know how i love debuts so yeah yeah that one rocks and that's is from, he like uh, not fully himself like, for that one sort of yeah he's like a little bit more trying to be pinching with that one it's, yeah. it's really good cool but um, but yeah, his writing, you know, it's very charming. It's very entertaining. It's fun to you know get lost in the worlds he creates and think where things are you know more colorful and really odd. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, I don't want to give away too much of the plot, uh, but there's you know wild conspiracy theories in it about the secret messages and pyramids and the uh, marketing of Camel cigarettes. <laughs> uh, you know, there's the bomb recipes, which may or not be real that I <laughs> read before. With Fruit Loops and Bad I'm pretty shit. fascinated by these guys who, like, because you said the original publication date is 1980, right? Yeah. So, like, a lot of these, like, I, I, an author like Robbins really was also operating without the internet. 
which yep. seems like impossible. I know. Not, not impossible, like but factoids more, and shit. Not impossible, but just sort of like a real monk you know what i mean like going to yeah. the library and like going into newspapers and stuff <laughs> yeah man that's some real work you know and like actually um there's an interesting part about this book it like opens up with him you know doing some metafiction and he's talking as himself being mm. like this is you know the book i'm gonna write and it's he's uh talking about the typewriter that he's using he's like talks about the his love affair with the typewriter that he's going to use, mm -hmm. which is a uh, Remington SL3. And it like pops up from time to time throughout the book as he goes through the stages of like hope that this is the typewriter for him. You know, mm -hmm. he does like a love story with it within the other love story. Like, you know, this typewriter is <laughs> the one he moves through like infatuation and then like, you know, it dulls and he gets annoyed at it. And near yeah. the end, he just, it's ultimately like rejection. He talks about <laughs> finishing the book with pen and paper and stuff. He breaks up with the typewriter. Yeah, <laughs> but um, overall, you know, it's a really weird, but it's a really cool book. Everything's vibrant and hyper real. You find yourself sort of believing in all the shit that he comes up with. Nice. Uh, and, you know, his writing style's as crazy as it always is. He apparently never goes back to edit anything. You always get, like, the first draft. Sometimes is that, that shows. Yeah, yeah. You know, sometimes that shows in a bad way. Sometimes it's awesome. Huh. So, like, literally his books don't have, like, a credited editor? Like, the publisher doesn't do, like... <laughs> I mean, I haven't looked into it that far, but that's what he says. <laughs> well, but, he's um, also wearing sunglasses 24 hours a day. And yeah. <laughs> and reading two words of Joyce every night. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's read two more real quick. Yeah, t real quick. <laughs> Cold spunk. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, page 517. Uh, <laughs> so, okay. So, so this book, I would say it's not my favorite of his for sure. I, I did want to just, I wanted to bring a Robbins book and I wanted to pick one that I knew you hadn't read. Yeah. Uh, I would say top five though. He's got like 12 books maybe or something, but yeah, really? I don't know, if you like, many? I think so by now, hmm. uh, if you like, you know, well-written humor with some meaning, yeah. it's, uh, like, you know, a Kurt Vonnegut or even yeah. like a Christopher Moore, definitely yeah give some robin to try yeah he's so good he's like he's like one of the only authors where like a like a really tacky funny cover is okay yeah yeah that's what this <laughs> one know. the cover of this one is like a camel cigarette package yeah all like you know like the all the cover like and some of those authors go some of those guys have really hideous covers like i'm pretty sure i've seen oh, yeah. some i think i've seen some uh tom robbins where you know it's just like weird like eyeballs photoshopped on us yeah <laughs> we'll save that we'll do a top four of worst book covers oh i got a, i got a whole yeah. handful of them <laughs> nice save yeah. it man save i it. got a recent one too <laughs> okay good all right uh nice so, so i got one more thing just for no reason in particular i just want to read a little bit of robin's going off on the subject of pyramids because that's like okay. a big theme in this book yeah, yeah, yeah. all in. right real quick pyramids Although everywhere in bad repair are not in the usual sense ruins. That is, they are not simply relics of civilizations that have gone out of business, of concern only to archaeologists, historians, and those who spend the present jacking off to the past. Pyramids will, were built to endure, made to defy both time and humanity. Their stones, jigged into position without mortar, were fit together so snugly you could not slip a bill between them, nor for that matter a credit card. 
oriented with extraordinary precision so that each of their angles faces one of the cardinal points, we can conclude from, from the pyramids that for thousands of years the position of the terrestrial axis has not appreciably varied. Pyramids are great global reference points, unequaled in technology or nature, but they are more than that. Whether they were utilized as tombs, temples, or astrolabes, or all three, may be less significant than the discovery that pyramids, apparently as a result of properties peculiar to their particular shape, can generate or amplify an energy frequency that is restorative to what the scientists call bioplasm, what philosophers call the life force, what the Chinese have always called qi. Pyramid power even enhances inorganic life. Pyramids are giant objects affecting other objects, animate and inanimate, in ways beyond those normally attributed to gravity and electromagnetism. Whatever the intended function of pyramids, they are not obsolete. They remain somehow relevant. In the last quarter of the 20th century, with the current civilization staggering blindfolded down a rail strewn with banana peels, the mysteries of pyramid power, once solved, might provide an answer to the ubiquitous question, where do we go from here? Obviously, somebody wanted us to keep pyramids in mind because the pyramid symbol has been placed conspicuously upon items that we regularly handle or observe. On any given day, there are more than $2 billion $1 bills in circulation. For most of the century, half of the cigarettes smoked in the United States were camels, something like $30 billion a year. It isn't likely that pyramids were chosen arbitrarily to adorn two of the most popular common objects of modern times. Somebody knew that dollars and cigarettes would be in wide circulation and saw to it that, pyramid, that pyramids would travel with them, constantly reminding a culture separated from the original structures by distance and time that pyramids have something of value to give if we learn how to receive it. <laughs> He's just like a met. It's like it reminds me of like you know those uh, in the movies when it's like red string all over a board like connected between yeah. themes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He predicted the uh, Illuminati. Right. <laughs> but yeah just just great writing and fun to read usually yeah all right so that's uh yeah that's all i had that's tom robbins still life with woodpecker sick all right good job yeah what you got Whew. okay so my book is a really i think a really important book for if anyone is listening who you know has ever had to consider their mental health if you've ever had problems with like mental health or you felt depressed or had like some sort of period of anxiety um i'm doing a book that really is just one of those huge milestones of like when you read it and you're someone who has had everyone well let's face it i mean i shouldn't say people who are listening if you've struggled with mental illness because we've all have at some point in our lives so this book um is very relatable especially maybe maybe more especially to depression than anxiety um mm -hmm. so the book that i'm doing today is another japanese novel um and it is the book called no longer human by osamu dazai um i've told you about this book i think yeah it yeah. rings a bell yeah no longer human so it was originally published in japan in 1948 and english translation came over in 1958 um does dazai and i'm probably butchering his name but what are you gonna do he is right. a He's, uh, I found him by way of once I noticed, you know, that I was reading Mishima and Murakami, who is still publishing, 
I was like, then I started wanting to read, you know, like the next milestone or the easiest one to go to after that is like Ishiguro, who's like a British Japanese novelist. Um, That was going to be my guess when you said another Japanese one. Yeah, like the, these are like the pillar, like the they basically like the people who make it over here, and I would say yeah. that Osamu Desai is probably someone that you wouldn't consider having made it over here, but it was like one level deeper than those guys. You know what I mean? Okay. So when I was yeah. reading, like, what was this guy? You know, I wanted to know what Mishima was reading because he was out of his freaking mind. So I was, you know, yep. what what was he reading? He was reading Desai. Um, he is, you know, one of those classic um stories happens all the time in japanese literature where just some stuff just hasn't gotten over here he published a decent amount but not all of it is translated into english and the sad truth might be that it may never be unless uh, someone really awesome kind of takes up the mantle but um mm-hmm. so the reason why i say you know getting in you know reading something that's really relatable for depression um Desai is somebody his personal history is kind of um he was one like one of you know eight kids or something like that like a huge japanese family and it was it was like sort of it seems like there was a sort of rags to riches story but with his father's generation so like his father kind of like came up from nothing but once Desai was in the picture he was like um they were like rich you know what i mean like he grew up with like a he grew up with like a nanny and uh like no one was really around his mom was like sick all the time and stuff like that but he did sort of like excel in literature really early on in life so he was basically like you know starting to go to specialized schools for literature in um in japan early on um so the the stuff that comes in about you know uh depression is basically Desai is incredibly honest he kind of takes that same sort of style i don't want to say that it's the same style because sometimes you don't know through translators and stuff like that but he does have a very pared down style just like mishima sometimes i say mishima writes like the japanese hemingway i would say Desai is also like that where it's like there's just no bullshit you know yeah um like the sentences are just like bam like i, I don't have yeah, to say no, anything about like the room no fat right you know like everything yeah. like that um so he definitely comes from that pared down style but what he is incredibly good at is he is just very good at sort of introducing you to the idea like he can bring you into these like sort of sad emotional states and like what the hell is wrong with me and you kind of get attached to character there's a little bit of like anti-heroes here like if you've ever seen taxi driver or like that movie panic and needle park where it's like you like the main characters but they're just horrific you know what i mean Um, yeah yeah monsters (laughs) yeah train spotting or something like that um and the reason you know so basically Desai, you know pretty gifted kid but early on in life and the wikipedia makes it sound like it was connected to an author that influenced him i don't know how much credence i give to that just because it's like a sentence in a wikipedia page but basically when he was around 18 years old one of his favorite authors committed suicide and it says 
I think that there's a bit of like causality that's being pushed on the the research online that you can do of design. But basically, after that <laughs> happened, after that happened, and he was like about to be 20 years old, like going into his 20s, he had like a two year kind of like thing where he just like went off the rails. He started drinking a lot and like prostitution and like all this crazy stuff. Um, so he just gets sucked in. Like, I don't really think it has anything to do, you know, with an influence dying can maybe, you know, be part of it, but he was definitely like, he just lost it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, so he goes on this like two year bender. And at the end of that, he does what he will be famously known for is he attempts suicide the first time. And the way that he attempts suicide the first time, meaning that he did survive, is he jumped into a river and he was going to do, like, dual suicide by drowning with his girlfriend at the time. Mm -hmm. So she died and he didn't. Wait, uh, he, she was... She wanted that? Yeah, she. They were okay, com okay. they were, like, committing suicide together. Okay, gotcha. But basically, like, I mean, I it's an interesting question that you bring up, Mark. She wanted that because it's like, I it's really hard to know, like, th especially through a lens of like these people are growing up in like 1900s Japan. Like, I don't know if she really wanted that, but she was like, you know, it, you know, they were doing it together. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and, he um, was the one who had the luxury of hindsight on that. Right. That's, yeah. So terrible. Yeah, so he they jump into the river. He gets saved by a fishing boat. He gets, like, the police are going to charge him with, like, a thing. Like, you can't do that or whatever. But it's one of those sentences that's so complicated that his rich family kind of comes in. They're like, no, like, we're going to squash this police investigation and, like, give him some money and, like, just, like, try to forget about this. Like, that kind of thing. Um, okay. And, I have a question really quick. Yeah. Is this... Is this book um, autobiographical? Is yes. So contents I've, of the book as well as his life story. Right. So everything I'm telling you right okay. now, even though he it's he, both. it's both, but he comes really close to the he cuts close to the bone when he's doing his autobiographical writing. It's like basically the truth of what happened. Um, but yeah. you know there is some creativity in there of like weaving characters characters together and stuff like that. But um, okay. Yeah, I mean, so basically somebody who's so depressed, who's so, like, their life is, like, you know, just completely, like, a downward spiral from the time of the beginning of the novel. Um, and it's one of those things where you're attached to the main character, but then about three-fourths of the way through the book, you realize, like, oh, it's just, like, only going down. Like, he tries to kill himself in the book. Like, the, his girlfriend doesn't live, but he does, so he moves in with his aunt, and it's just this whole, like... And then he starts doing, like, opiates and stuff like that, and you're just, like... It's all just going downhill. He goes into a mental institution at one point. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these aren't things that I'm really, like, spoiling the plot, because, again... There, this is not really one of those books where I can tell you, and then this happens, and then this happens, and that's what you're the reason yeah, that you're reading. Yeah. The reason that you're reading is because he is somebody who has kind of like maintained the emotional memory of what it feels like to be depressed and actually like wrote it accurately before dying. <laughs> um, and it is true that he, um, 
he then went on to marry another woman and finally him and the second woman killed themselves by drowning and it worked for both of them yeah <laughs> so i mean i like oh, that that's the end of so many you know authors lives yeah i mean just the 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 sentence that i just said is you know think about how crazy that was i just had to say yeah. and for the second time he committed <laughs> uh oh. and and the woman also died so it's two different women i mean you could you know nowadays you know you could consider this guy you know a manipulator maybe even somebody who's like a murderer like you're you're doing like these crazy things that really affect people um but he was also a writer um and, you know, he just writes really beautiful things. I'm going to read one short quote from the book, which is on the back of my copy, but also I'll read the um, first paragraph of the back of the book. So basically like the jacket cover. This first part is a quote. Okay. It says, mine has been a life of much shame. I can't even guess myself what it must be to live the life of a human being. So basically, this book and the theme of no longer human, when it's when it's translated literally, it means disqualified to be human. So no longer human or like I'm disqualified. And yeah. basically, the entire theme of the book is like, I am somebody who's inside my own skull, but I'm not like anyone else. And everything happening outside of like my existence is like um, foreign, like I'm the only yeah. one who's an alien. So again, that like huge alienation theme going back to the first book that I ever did was Confessions of a Mask. So this um, this book is is sort of like that where there's just these declarative, insanely depressive and beautiful statements about like, I am not a human because I'm so upset all the time. Um, it also, the structure of the book is told as if it's like a found... Um, found letters like found footage type of thing so there's three notebooks parts one two and three and um the beginning uh the intro and the outro or the epilogue are sort of some some anonymous person finding <clears throat> the photographs and notebooks of basically who you l learn to be is osamu desai even though it's a character's name <laughs> um does he does uh, I guess I don't want to... Does he die in this book? Like, in his... In the book, it's the like... The conclusion of this, is it In the book, it's it? just an anonymous person looking at a family photograph, and then it dips into the guy's notebooks, but I don't think it goes into him actually dying, no. Okay. Um, it just... He is just... Um, He he's just very sort of lost. Okay. <laughs> um, Did he I, ever realize like the success of this book? Um, I think that he did realize success. Like yes, in his lifetime, probably because he survived that first suicide attempt. He then goes on, you know, um, to you know publish a bunch of not like he becomes a writer basically um, okay he become you know stuff is published in short stories and stuff while he's alive and books and stuff but ultimately he's just uh he's a big he's really is sort of like a documentarian for the depressed human condition um i'll read you the first paragraph of the summary so 
Portraying himself okay. as a failure, the protagonist of Osamu Desai's No Longer Human narrates a seemingly normal life even while he feels himself incapable of understanding human beings. Obayozu's attempts to reconcile himself to the world around him begin in early childhood, continue through high school, where he becomes a clown to mask his alienation, and eventually lead to a failed suicide attempt as an adult. Without sentimentality, he records the casual cruelties of life and its fleeting moments of human connection and tenderness. Um, so yeah, I, I, the, that summary also mentions a big thing about the book is that early on he discovers that he knows how to make people laugh or he can like say sort of like absurdist things and people will have a reaction that lets him sort of slip under the rug after that. So yeah. it's a really interesting perspective on developing um, a shell of humor that is completely invalidated by what's inside. Um, it's definitely that type of book where nothing funny, like nothing funny happens. There's nothing that you read that you laugh. It's just sort of like he makes bizarre and awkward situations by saying like one thing. And then he's like, and then I got to slip back into being like the depressive person who wants like drugs all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, I'm I'm forced to you know think about our mutual friend who you know killed yeah. himself at 18, and yep, you know so... he was the funniest, one of the funniest <laughs> people I ever know. Yeah, so our mutual friend, something that probably brought us to closer in life, was uh, our friend committed suicide when he was 18, so and we were like 17, so um, yeah, yeah. So definitely, I think you can understand that period and that state of mind um a lot better especially yeah like you, you bring up a good point like if you know people who have uh families who are survivors of suicide victims or um you know just anything that has to do with mental health reading a book like this can can bring it into the dark side a little bit but it can also be sort of commiserate with like there's this just this really eloquent person who's kind of like writing about some of the darkest feelings you've ever had so it's um yeah yeah it can help you you know sort through you know not blaming you know mm -hmm. and i think understanding uh, more something that i underlined good i'm flipping through right now just looking for quotes on stuff that i want to read out loud and something that i um underlined in the text which i remember really well um i think that uh you know he, he, this is the perfect description. What I'm about to dive into is the perfect description of when you feel indebted to like, like what, like what creates something that's socially awkward. We all know the feeling of being socially awkward and he kind of, uh, compares it to, um, being indebted to people. So I'll just read it. So the circumstances were such that I had no way of avoiding the landlord's daughter or his comrade. Every day we bumped into one another. I could not dodge them, as I had various other women in the past. Before I knew what was happening, my chronic lack of assurance had driven me willy-nilly into desperate attempts to ingratiate myself with both of them. It was just as if I were bound to them by some ancient debt. 
So what I think he's saying, like, there's a lot of kind of subtexts around um, that are weaved in and out of the story, but it's basically like, what is this compulsion that, like, makes you feel guilty about awkward... Like, he sees these people on the way to... I think he's, like, on the way to somewhere or something, but he sees them regularly. And then it's like, why do I owe them something? Like, why does... Yeah. Like, why, like that is just, like, the, the theme of life. There's, like, this gravitational, like, oh, I have to do this for you. Yep. Um, and, and... I mean, uh, with the landlord, I mean, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and here's another... I- some some other stuff that I uh, underlined was uh, irrationality. I found the thought faintly pleasurable, or rather, I felt at ease with it. What frightened me was the logic of the world. In it lay the foretaste of something incalculably powerful. Its mechanism was incomprehensible, and I could not possibly be, remain closeted in that windowless, bone-chilling room. Though outside lay the sea of irrationality, it was far more agreeable to swim in its waters until presently I drowned. Uh, And then in another paragraph he says, People also talk of the criminal consciousness. All my life in this world of human beings I have been tortured by such a consciousness. It has been my faithful companion, like a wife in poverty, and together, just the two of us, have indulged in our forlorn pleasures. (laughs) Um, wow. So he's carrying around this sort of like secretive, dark, um, you know, it's a really good book about alcoholism. He goes into like, you know, the euphoria of, you know, being drunk and then he gets addicted to it and stuff like that and can't step away. So, um, just overall, just, it's one of those kind of chances in history. It feel you really do feel like you're reading something genuine, like, oh, someone was like really feeling this way, but also accurately, you know, talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, which is good. And he also, um, another thing to bring up, which is constantly a reference for this book, is if you're a fan of Dostoevsky and Notes from un- from Underground or Notes from the Underground, that book where the depressed guy falls in love with a prostitute, yeah. um, this is very much like that. And Dostoevsky was in Desai's Radar. He actually references him in this book. <laughs> He really? refer- he references Dostoevsky, so that's also like really cool too. Like it's that blend of, um, you know, I think that I think that you'll find that with movies and with um, books that get over to the Western world from Japan is that it usually starts with the ones who were most influenced from the West. So like Akira Kurosawa was like mostly influenced by Western. So then, but then the next person you read about is like Ozu, who was like not mm-hmm. as western so it kind of it's like getting back farther and farther into that so Desai's connection with the west was like he was a huge Dostoevsky guy um which fits completely like if you think about crime and punishment it's the same kind of thing here where it's like this character that is just like really really depressed um, yeah well, you know that's a that's a topic subject that will never be worn out that's true. You know, yeah, there you, will never there be will... someone who masters the description <laughs> of depression. It's always, you know, it's ever evergreen. That's kind of and people want. You know, I would I wouldn't be ashamed to say that I would want a new one. Like if someone came up to me today and said, "Hey, there's this book that came out in 2018, like two weeks ago, that is, you know, just as good as Desire," I'd be like, "Oh yeah, I'm reading it for sure. I want it yeah. up." I because you know it also affects us in different ways. It's interesting to. You bring up a good point, too, of, like, since it's inexhaustible, there's also sort of, like, a almost like a history. You're reading, like, a like what the problems were back then versus what they would be now. Yeah. 
and uh, and how you know the resources that you have or yeah you know, like you like I'd how like to say there's a lot more understanding of you know mental health now right yeah yeah all that kind of stuff wrapped wrapped into it so it's just a great read um and i'm i'm definitely looking forward to reading some of his other major novels have been translated into english so i'm definitely looking forward to those but this is definitely the most famous one if you ever hear about him you're gonna hear about no longer human first yeah um so when yeah, you were I, reading earlier, you said you used the term uh, willy-nilly, and I want to find out what the Japanese translation for that is. Uh, we can ask our friend Brett, who lives in Japan, <laughs> uh, give him a quick text. Okay, that's it. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. This has been Shitty Book Reports. You can find us every Sunday on Spotify, SoundCloud, Instagram, and Twitter at SBR the Podcast. You can also email us at uh, sbrthepodcast at gmail.com. Give us comments, suggestions, corrections, whatever you're feeling. See you next time. Mm-hmm.